0: Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world.
1: I'm Amitha Raman.
0: And I'm Will Powley.
1: And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hi Will.
0: Hey Amitha. Loving the dog pound promo merch that's happening right now. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Thank you. You know, I have to represent my dog-found family. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So what's on your radar this week?
0: Well, I've been watching a lot of TV, and I actually read this phenomenal article in The New Yorker that was talking about the rise of ambient TV, and I've been thinking about that quite a bit. The author talks about these shows like Emily in Paris that basically nothing happens, but they're just like super beautiful to look at, but also kind of dumb. So it doesn't really matter how you watch it. It's just like there in the background, like Emily in Paris in particular. Sorry to all of you people (laughs) who are into it. I'm not.
1: That's how I felt about Queen's Gambit as well. (laughs) I think it's so funny that they have like a term for this kind of crap TV. But, you know, we've talked about this before, how just... There's so many streaming services out there. There's so much demand for content that I feel like it's sort of watering down the quality of everything that comes out, which is, you know, totally the opposite of our next guest, who is so intentional, so deliberate with her art making and so soulful that it's really was such a pleasure to speak with her.
0: This episode, we are beyond thrilled to be talking to the legendary artist Ursula von Known for her highly personal and often monumental sculptures in cedar and bronze, Ursula has been working in Brooklyn, New York for the past 30 years. She has had numerous exhibitions around the world, including solo shows at the beautiful Yorkshire Sculpture Park in England in 2015, the 2015 Venice Biennale, the wonderful fabric workshop and museum in Philadelphia, and last year in 2019 at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. Her work is in the permanent collection of museums, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, San Francisco MoMA, and the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, just to name a few. And to add to an almost endless list of accomplishments, Ursula was also inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 2008. I actually had the true pleasure of getting to know Ursula at a very special dinner for a nonprofit that we both love called Art21. And it was then that, you know, I was fortunate enough to learn that not only is Ursula a truly visionary artist, one of the things that really struck with me was that she's just one of the most kind, you are, Ursula, one of the most kind, generous, and brilliant people I've had the privilege of meeting. So it's such a joy to have you with us today, Ursula. Welcome.
2: Well, I'm very, very happy to be with all of you and uh, especially with the big smiles that you have. And if I can start with... Something I call, why do I make art? And this is for everybody, for artists, for non-artists. And I'm hoping that there's some clarity to that why, but it doesn't answer that question really, because it's impossible. So why do I make art? Mostly to survive to ease my high anxiety, to numb myself with the labor and the focus of building my work. Objects or the process by which I concretize my ideas feel so good because I invariably, especially with my most monstrous pieces, run into intense anxiety moments from which I have to unravel myself. Because there's a pleasure in it. Because there's pain in it. Because I endure a hefty load of self-doubt. Because I have confidence in the possibility of seeing this work through. Because I see life as being full of abominations because life is full of marvels close to miracles, because I still don't know who I am, because I'll never get to know who I am, because my deepest admiration goes to those who have made art that has interested me, because I want attention from those who make good art because I need to use both my body and my mind. The labor of my body is what keeps me awake and alive, what numbs me and offers a kind of veneer between me and the things in life which are painful to face. Because the visuals, that which I perceive through my eyes, are an extraordinarily important part of my life. Because I don't want to be doing anything else with my life. That the building of my artwork feels like the most consequential thing I could be doing with my time. Because I can run into a world of my making both physically and mentally. Because I like working with a group of assistants who become another kind of family. Because I like the daily rhythm of going to my studio because it's a place to put my pain, my sadness, because there's a constant hope inside of me that this process will heal me, my family, and the world, because it helps fight inertia, because I like embroidering around my long ago Polish fantasies because I can reach into the future with my work, because I constantly need to try to better understand the immense suffering and pain of my family that I never seem to really understand. And also because I want to get answers to questions for which there are no answers.
0: Wow. I feel like we could just end the interview there. (laughs) That I'm still processing that. (laughs) That's exquisite, Ursula. Wow.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us to start off the interview. I feel like we could go in so many different directions from there because you touched on so many of the things that we want to cover in our interview questions today. Thank you. Am
0: I allowed to ask... What was the sort of genesis of those thoughts and statements? How long have you been working on those? Do they continue to evolve? What role do they play for you in your practice?
2: I worked on it for a few hours and it was probably six years ago. And it's just a way of tapping into... The question that everybody asks is why you make art and obviously the answer is that the answer is very very complicated (laughs) and there's not a yes or a no or it's foggy but it really taps into the reality of it but not in a way where it's, it's fun, it's so boring. It's, you, know, you know, it's not in that way that you dip into some things that you have inside of you. You don't know where, but it's that thing that guides you when you make your artwork. And I don't know what its name is. It doesn't have any name for me. I think the closest thing I could think of is this instinct And I sort of Mm. believe in my instinct. I've been working for so long and I trust it more and more as I get older.
0: I'll be very candid and honest and say I feel very moved first by what you articulated, but then also the the way that you think about it and, and how it sits both for you but also even for me, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not an artist, but they're tenets or ideas that I was frantically writing down because I thought, <laughs> oh, gosh, these are good things for me to bear in mind as, as I go throughout my life, or my daily life.
2: I'll give you a copy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, 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 I promise. I'm, I'm, I feel like um, I will I'll cherish be it. i happy to. That would be really wonderful. Thank you.
1: Ursula, I wanted to actually ask you about what you just said about dipping into memories. I feel like that's something that's come up in previous interviews that you've often said that you dip into early memories to help you conceptualize your work. I know one- example that often comes up is the memory that you have as a young girl in that linen nightgown that you had. So I was wondering, can you speak to the role that memory plays in your work? And is this a conscious method that you're using to kind of tap into those memories? I could say
2: no to almost everything that you said. You know, when I work on a piece that's what I focus on. And there is so much to focus on. And usually when I start a sculpture, I start building from the ground and I have an idea in my head, never a drawing, never any kind of a dictate as to what it should be, but I do have an idea in my head how it should look. Because otherwise you can't start. So I build in a way that's kind of raw. I kind of know where I'm going, but mostly I don't know where I'm going. And that this thing that I spoke about, that's my instinct. Maybe you can call it that. And there's a lot of will in making my work. There's a lot of want. Like you need to figure this one out. You know, not that it's a problem, but it could be a problem. But sometimes it is a problem. It would be such a kind of waste of my time to think about things of long, long ago. And I'm not saying that they didn't influence me, but we really don't even know what it is that influenced us that made some things possible and some things impossible. And I don't, Really, I'm not a person to really answer with such clarity that I did this because this happened. You know, it's not that clear. I think that there's like an ocean of in-betweens. And especially since it's been so, so long that I had that story, although I love it, you know, the story of my having this nightgown on me that is very hard linen and it's linen that looks like it's almost something that's that's not even a fabric because it's so thick and it's so hard and so determined to be what it wants to be so that it's almost i don't know it, it it's related to a sculpture And Mm. I was only two years old. And I remember the way the sun hit on it. And I remember the dark places. But that's still not to say that that's why I make the kind of work I make. Because it's just too simple. And the brain is never quite that simple.
0: One of the things I was so fascinated to learn about you is you have this incredible life story And what I found so remarkable and beguiling is how it seems that you sort of dip in and out of your personal history when you work with, or when you sort of create works. And as an example of that, I was so fascinated when I sort of was looking at how you title your works in that some of them uh, you know, have English titles, but some of them have Polish titles. Obviously coming from Poland, that seems to harken back to your heritage or, or personal history. How do you think about that dipping in or touching or, or responding to that, but not being beholden to it or not being determined by it? If that's a fair question.
2: Yeah, I try very hard, and I'm not always successful at it, to make a name that does not try to explain the piece. I can't explain the piece. You can't explain the piece. The piece has a lot of metaphors, a lot of explanations if it's any good, or at least I think that way. And the Polish names, and I think I have about 80% of my pieces have Polish names, only to put this kind of, you know, cap over explaining the piece. This is really (laughs) not going (laughs) to explain the piece because I bet you don't know Polish. So... I sometimes make pieces that feel as though they have a special emotional content but it's not just one it's just many many emotional things that are happening and I give it a name that's it's, it's the one in storm king and the name is Luba yes. <clears throat> And Luba in Polish is something that you love. You can call your dog Luba. You can call your husband Luba. But then I feel, you know, oh, geez, I just hope a Pole doesn't see this, this, because (laughs) he's going to get, you know, a hint, a bigger hint. But but mostly I I don't. I don't want to do that because people go to a piece... And say, you know, if there's a word bowl in the front of my piece, they'll say, oh, it's a bowl. You know, they look at it and go. Yeah. Yeah. But my Mm -hmm. bowls are not bowls. They're kind of a part of the universe and they negotiate with that universe. So they're an excuse to do all of these things that are so, it's not easy to do. It's not Having the kind of clarity, but maybe even that's the wrong word, that most Mm. things that are made have, you know, but there's just, and I can only, again, reach out to the word metaphors. This is what poets do. They don't have a right and a wrong. It's not that. They don't have a good and a bad but they have something that is much greater, something that they put together that has never been put together before. And you go on a search with them, but you can go on a different search the next time you read the poem. you know. So it's more like that, I hope, with my work.
1: I'm curious. I've seen... In a couple of interviews, you refer to your sculptures with female pronouns, like she and her. When did that begin? And why do you feel that they have a kind of feminine energy? I don't know. I have many, many, many more she's than he's. I know. I heard about the dog that you used to have that was born male. And he had a female energy as well in your studio.
2: (laughs) That's true. That's true. I don't know what the answer is. I suppose I could just say, you know, one of the flat answers that aren't very interesting, that this is what I wanted. This is <laughs> what I had in mind. You know, I didn't have in mind that it's a girl or there's a woman, or that it's, but something that felt feminine.
0: When Amitha asked, why do you give your works female pronouns? I was so intrigued that you said, well, I can give you a flat answer and <laughs> simply that I wanted to. And maybe that's one of the things that a reason why we both admire you so much is that many people would just mm. give that as an answer and think that was sufficient. But you're such a deep thinker. You are so expansive in how you contemplate your work and the world, that's something that many people would see as adequate for you, that an answer like that <laughs> you view as inadequate. It's uh, <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I feel very, it, honestly, it makes me even more humbled and, and dare I say intimidated that we get to talk to you because I'm like, oh my goodness, who is this person with this brilliant mind? You know, an answer that I would say is, oh yeah, sure. That's a good answer. <laughs> is um, in, inadequate, but um, it's pretty good.
2: But you see, when I'm in my studio, how do I say it? I am, have the most freedom I have anywhere else in the world. It's my sanctuary. Everything Mm. is built and all the tools. I have huge numbers of things that I have to have in order to do my work, including I have to have at least three or four people working with me if I'm doing a large piece. Wow. And I can... (laughs) be bad, I mean, I can be, you know, (laughs) sad, pissed, you know, I can be, but it doesn't mean that I show that to the people that work for me, but I can do what I want, you know, and Mm. and it's such Mm -hmm. a glorious gift for your life, you know, for leading your life. Because once you get out those doors, you have to stop at the red lights and you have to, you know, it's all a different game. Mm -hmm. And you have to be nice. I dress for my art, for making my art. And what I wear is really often pathetic because I don't don't care how ripped it is. I I don't care, you know, as long (laughs) as it's light that it doesn't give me any more heavy things. Cause I, I put a whole cap on top of me. I think you've probably seen that cause there's a lot of, a mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of
0: you your know, space suit. I call it. Yeah. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes, yes. You look like an astronaut <laughs> and
2: it's heavy and it's, yeah, it's, it's getting to be a real pain, but we're going to figure out things that might be lighter.
1: I'm, I hope. Well, coincidentally, actually, the last in real life studio that I was fortunate enough to visit before quarantine was your space in Bushwick with the Scohegan Council. And I remember seeing, even in that brief visit, your interactions with your assistants and your cutters. It's really obvious that you have built a very strong community and have fostered a strong culture um, in your studio. Can you speak to the importance of why it's extremely important to kind of create that atmosphere in your studio to help make the art? It's very,
2: very, very important. And before the pandemic, we used to eat in our kitchen. We have a kitchen and we have like, I don't know, eight seats for all of us to eat together together but it's not just the eating but that's what helped make our family a family my assistants go on vacations together they are really a family i took them to that english exhibition i took them all to the opening of 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 the one in the yorkshire sculpture park that's amazing they were at the uh at, in washington dc at the opening uh, of the exhibition there. And you have to trust them. I'm on scaffolding one third of my life. They're so careful about the way that they build this scaffolding. And they're very careful of my safety in general. You know, they're very aware. And nobody ever, ever, and I've never said this to them nobody ever says, gee, this doesn't look as good as it could, you know, or move this a little more. (laughs) It's never happened in my entire career. And I never said anything about it. You know, they just know that there's this will that's going to do what it needs to do, whether It works, whether it doesn't work. And I do have, just so you know, I have, I burn some of my pieces every other Mm -hmm. year. Some of my sculptures, some of the cedar sculptures, right. And I burn them upstate. It's near the place Corten Steel, huge building full of my pieces. And there are pieces that I can't stand anymore, you know, that they're that they're. That they're not mm. what, I, I I don't want to look at them anymore. So they just get the fire.
0: Well, Ursula, there, there was a word you mentioned earlier that I wrote down and underscored was nice. And oh. it's in, in that I think you're very nice and kind and... Like a, a family with your assistance, and obviously with other people, that's one of the things I'm charmed isn't even the right word in terms of how I feel about you or charmed by you. But that might be your relationship with people, but I'm curious about your relationship with material in that when you work, I've watched all these videos of you with chainsaws and blow torches. And I almost want to say, well, what you do to your material isn't very nice. And that's something that I find very (laughs) cool and intriguing. Could you talk about your use of materials?
2: That never occurred to me that that putting a fire on it isn't so nice. Even the ones that I hate. Um, no, it just—it just didn't. It never occurred to me. How do I answer? What's the short question? Oh, nice. I hate the word nice. <laughs> it's just like, shut up, you know, don't do that to me. So it's, oh, this is nice. This is a nice piece. This is a nice,
1: you know, hairstyle. I've heard you also hate beautiful. The word beautiful is also yeah, One to avoid. you're right. <laughs> How did you know that? We do our research <laughs> here, you know, right. we want to be prepared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, going back to materials, obviously over the course of your long career, you've experimented with everything from steel to cow intestine, but you, you've said that you continuously come back to cedar, even though you're trying to get away from that as your principal material. Could you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah,
2: I could. I hate cedar. I don't want to have to use cedar. But these are the best pieces as I make with cedar somehow. You know, it's like the material that does the best in terms of the results. But I hate the cedar itself. I'm allergic to it. Can you imagine oh. that's why I have to wear those
1: those? Yeah, I thought it was just from the sawdust, but I didn't know that you're actually allergic. no, to-
2: it's sawdust, but i i if I get the sawdust for five minutes, you know, I start suffering,
1: oh well, no wonder you hate cedar,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I and I've been trying to get rid of it for, for maybe I don't know 20 years and I can't. And, and each time I see a truck coming in, you know, from California, I say, okay, this is the last truck <laughs> and it never is.
0: Can you tell us the story of how you arrived at Cedar in particular? I know nothing about wood, I know there's Oak and walnut and cedar and I don't know what MDF is. I guess it's cardboard. But why <laughs> cedar? Well,
2: that's in pretty. That's pretty good lineup. You're doing okay. <laughs> uh, this why cedar?
0: High praise coming from you. So thank you.
2: <laughs> it's soft, and I went to Columbia University in. 1973, I was doing my master's program and there was this monk that was one of the people who was a part of the class that did a lot of work for me for making the loft that I had somewhat better to live in because it had nothing. It had no water, No, it had nothing.
0: I saw photos of that loft, by the way, in your film. It looked, it was something.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was. So he brought me on one of the last days of graduation after two years there. And it was four by four cedar beams, And that's what I've been using ever since because I took my circular saw to it and it was so easy. It's like almost cutting butter. And I knew how many cuts you could put in and still keep cutting. You could control it very easy. So it just felt like, I don't know, it's not like falling in love. It's not like that, but it felt like boy, this does something you're going to be interested in doing. And of course, with each piece, it becomes more and more difficult because I don't want to bore myself. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do the same pieces over and over again, even though I use a lot of bowls, but the bowls do enormously different things. So cedar does stuff Now that it never thought it could do, you know, I just tear it up. I use it in ways that are so unconventional, but also, you know, so different to look at, so wonderful to to see the surfaces of.
0: Damn Cedar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's this, it sounds like this tussle. It's, it's, you love it, but you hate it. It's um a, a funny and very, I'm not, I was going to say beautiful, but I know, I'm, I know you hate that word.
1: Banned, <laughs> <It's, Yeah>. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: but it's almost like your, your parents, right? I mean, you love them, you hate them, but I guess I hate the cedar more than I hate my parents. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm curious, uh, both Amitha and I, we also were really fascinated by the fact that you've also expanded into working with bronze and copper. What's that journey been like?
2: I made one for Princeton. Huge.
0: You know, just to interject, Princeton is my alma mater, so... And I have mixed feelings about it. I, I both love it and hate it. So, Did you see it? I have not seen it yet in person, but I so know the location. So how you love
2: it and hate it?
0: Oh, the, the, the institution.
2: I see. I see.
0: I see. <laughs> so if you have bad things to say about them, or good things, or both, you're in a safe space.
2: <laughs> I got it. She stands in great pride, you know, Mm. in front of four buildings that were built by Billy Tsien and Todd Williams. And they're such great architects, you know, they're Mm. so independent Mm. of a lot of other architecture, you know, that that's the boring stuff that they do in New York city where (laughs) they just go up, 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 up into the air and there's nothing to be seen. I don't know what, They go by, but it doesn't feel like a home in any sense.
1: Well, actually, the Princeton sculpture, you just touched on that. I thought it was very, yeah, I thought it was an interesting choice um, that you decided to experiment with copper, a material that you weren't familiar with for this monumentally scaled uh, project. So, I mean, I think, you know, the fact that you work with these difficult materials, you work on such a large scale, you're clearly an artist that doesn't take the easy way out and you like to challenge yourself. I wonder if you could talk to us about, is that a conscious thing? How do you set new challenges for yourself to keep evolving your practice and pushing it forward? And as a follow-up question, were there specific experiences like grants or residencies that you received that you felt helped propel your practice forward?
2: I loved the residency of going to Italy. Mm. Uh, the American Academy of Arts.
1: In it Rome. In Rome. <gasps> <laughs> That's what I oh. say too. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, that was sort of a leading question though, because I was hoping that you were going to say Skohegan. <laughs> Oh, Skowhegan? Yes, that's the, that's the board that I just joined recently. And that's why I was able to visit your studio right before um, quarantine. So yes, <laughs> no, yes. I'm just kidding. We'll edit that part out, but continue on. <laughs>
2: well, you don't have to edit it out. But, but, but there's a lot of divorces that happen and even marriages. I mean, <laughs> like dramatic things happen there because I taught there for one summer. So
1: uh, what was the question? How do you set new challenges for yourself to continue to evolve your practice? I just don't want to be bored. I want to do something different.
2: Right now, I'm doing a piece that has its center body. It's very, very difficult to describe, but one of the different things that I'm doing on it is putting some sort of skins On it, Mm. skins on the surface of that central piece. This just a central piece that's kind of more like a bowl, but it's not a bowl because I cut it deep into the both sides of it. And then there are all kinds of things happening on either side. But on the front and the back, there are things that are like skins that are floating on the surface of the sculpture. And It feels like there's so much vulnerability all through. And sometimes these skins are tripled. You know, there's not just one skin. Then I put another skin to a second and then sometimes even a third. So you can see through this way in the pieces. It's nothing like what I've done ever before. And it was one of the most challenging pieces to make in terms of being hard, to do those cuts so that both in the foundry and in my studio I'm always preparing something that's harder for them to make harder for the foundry to make mm. and harder for the cutters to cut but that some somehow that's what i need you know not that i need it to be harder i just need to keep pushing the areas that I haven't yet explored.
0: It's fascinating. I mean, uh, I'm curious how you respond to this, but I think as I've spent more time with your work and as I've seen, you know, you in the fabrication process, the the word that came to mind to describe you, at least for me, is fearless, or you're fearless, that... (laughs) You know, it's really to work with the tools that you do, to work with the scale that you do. I mean, uh, you mentioned it, the the hazmat suits, those astronaut suits <laughs> that you work with and, you know, your boots. I would be very intimidated by the s- scale, <laughs> the sheer force of, of the materials. A- and so I'm curious, one, how do you... Respond to that idea of you being fearless. And then, as a follow up question, I'm kind of curious because you've spoken about setting yourself challenges and you keep on meeting or or tackling those challenges. Is there anything that you're afraid of?
2: Oh my God, you have to be kidding! (laughs) Ah, Oh my God, I'm so vulnerable. I mean, I love, love making big pieces, but they have to want to be big. It has Mm. to work for them to be big. Otherwise it wouldn't work. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do what it's supposed to do because the big pieces envelop your body so that you have that plus. It's not like looking at a painting. Mm -hmm. At the painting, you look at it and you go into it with your eyes deeply, you know, with a lot of details. With a big piece, it's just another feeling, but the feelings are all very different. I have one that goes along the wall, I don't know, maybe 30 feet, 35 feet. Wow. It had to be that way because it started off having only about uh, four or five feet to it. And then, of course, I knew it it wasn't working. So I, I kept going and going and going. And the important thing is, is that when I do the work, I don't really listen that carefully to what I'm supposed to be doing with this work. You know, what my initial vision was of what I wanted and what I do when I build is I grope, you know, I fig I try to figure out by groping, because the more you have built already, the more the piece tells you what else it needs, what else it wants. So, you don't have to be so faithful to the thing that you thought first that you wanted. In fact, the faithfulness is kind of a, a joke. You know, you just then do mm-hmm. what the piece is
1: telling you it wants. It sounds like a very intuitive way of working, but I'm curious when you are commissioned for projects with a set timeline, I mean, how does that, how, do you, how can you both be intuitive and kind of respond to the piece, but also deal with practical things like timelines?
2: Well, I don't think a timeline has too much to do with being intuitive. I've been, I have to say, like fantastic with all timelines. In, in other words, that, that that's not a problem. You know, I, that, that is that I start at the time that I need to start and I have a good idea about how much time I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And we never like go crazy at the end. We're very organized, I have to say. And we're very attentive to what needs to be done, including, you know, if we're hanging things or if we're installing things or if we're installing the pieces outdoors somewhere,
1: you really have to know what you're doing. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier about you laughed and said, oh, Even though Will thinks of you as such a fearless badass, which I do as well, you think of yourself as a very vulnerable person. And I think it's interesting because you've said that it's taken almost your entire life to gain confidence and really recognize yourself as an artist. So can you kind of pinpoint what was that turning point for you when you really gained confidence and do you ever still struggle today?
2: I certainly struggle today and yesterday and, you know, 10 years ago. And I have fun in all
1: of those things anyway. And uh, what was the other thing that you said? Well, what are some of your coping strategies when you do have those moments of doubt? How do you kind of regain your confidence?
2: I don't know. How do you regain your
1: confidence, you know, when you, when you fear something? I'm still working on it. I don't think I have. <laughs> I don't think that I, yeah, <laughs> I'm still finding my way. I, you know, I am too.
2: You know, I have not made my best piece yet. Mm, wow. I mean, I'm still going strong. I've made two large pieces during the pandemic. I started my people working with me on July, the beginning of July. So I just, I don't know, it's so, so hard. It was so hard during the pandemic not to be able to go to my studio. Finally, I just i just went whether I could go or not because all I had to do is get into a car and then drive to Bushwick it makes such a such an enormous enormous difference to have this schedule this thing that i can predict that i can continue you know with my ideas and with my making my work
0: when i was watching into her own the documentary which is fabulous and anyone listening must download it and watch it immediately you spoke about new york and in particular you were speaking about how you arrived in New York and you described it as an awakening. And I'm curious, both Amitha and I are sort of proud New Yorkers now. Obviously I'm not from New York originally, but I now count myself as a New Yorker. I'm curious, can you speak a little bit about New York, about your journey to New York and how that arrival was, to use that word, an awakening? What role does it play for you?
2: I actually taught high school kids art for nine years. Oh wow. And there were sometimes junior because my poverty, I was just very, very poor. I mean I had to live somehow. So that's how I lived, is with my paycheck. Then I decided when I was in New Britain, Connecticut, which is a town full of factories. My father Mm. was working in one of those factories. Stanley works. And horrible, horrible circumstances. It's not only smelling, but he had to have chains on his arms that picked his arms up when the dye came down just so that he wouldn't have his fingers smashed. He wouldn't forget to get them out of the way to get them. But it was inhuman, you know, and, and his hands kept, uh, can you imagine, eight for eight hours.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: A- anyway, so what was your question? I-, I went off on a tangent again.
0: I mean, one, I- I'm still reeling with it. The-
2: oh, the awakening. I decided... Yeah. When I was living in New Britain, Connecticut, I decided to apply to Columbia University because I didn't have a master's degree. Mm. So I did and I got in and coming to New York City was poverty again. You know, I couldn't buy a newspaper because I couldn't afford it. But the only thing I could afford was the rent that Columbia University that I had to pay to Columbia University, and food. There was a lot of poverty. But it was so alive. The shows were Uh. so fantastic. There were other artists. There was no artist in New Britain. Or actually, there was an artist in New Britain, but I didn't know him. It was Saul LeWitt. Wow. (laughs) And... It was just a whole nother world that thought so differently of art. Uh, And I was just like overwhelmed and so happy I found my kind. It's like going to your family that you never knew, you know, or you never even knew it existed.
1: Sounds like it was a very validating experience for you because you kind of always inherently felt compelled to create even if you didn't know that you were making art. So to finally be around an environment where that's validating what your life purpose, I'm sure that was very inspirational. Yes.
2: I used to sit on the stone bunches at Columbia University and my cheeks would like be so red and they would throb, you know, because I was so excited.
1: I couldn't (laughs) believe it. Wow. Were there any specific museum or gallery shows that you can remember that have stuck with you? Yes, I saw a lot of MoMA. Let's see.
2: They were just all over. It was not just the the famous guys either. You know, it was Mm -hmm. people that were struggling, like me and like the people that were with me at the school, at the university.
0: I hope you don't mind me adding and this is important to point out and to commend you for is I understand that you would go to grad school, you would take classes with your daughter. And the reason I point that out is because it's so remarkable. And of course, to point out the so messed up, the gender inequality that very few fathers do that. But as a mother that you did that is remarkable.
2: Well, I would have never, never, never left her anywhere, you know, so mm. she came right with us. And I think she had a pretty interesting young number of years in New York City. I was on the corner of Spring Street and 6th Avenue and there were no lights, you oh, know, wow. there were just factories, but the factories were dying down And they were all stores. None of the stores sold clothing. It wasn't like this frou-frou like it became now. They were all, you know, where you can get nails, you can get, what do you call the things where you can get all implements to work with? Hardware? Hardware stores, full of hardware stores. And then there was this one store that did these knives you know, that would cut, but the knives were like 20 feet long, you know, they could (laughs) cut paper. Yes. So it was really interesting and raw, raw, raw. The sidewalks were all beaten up. And so
1: that's the kind uh, of place that I could afford then. And then you were a very early pioneer in Brooklyn. You had your studio in Williamsburg starting in 1981. So you've probably, I'm sure you've witnessed a lot of gentrification and the area change a lot. I'm curious, obviously now New York is kind of going through another transition with quarantine and a lot of people moving in and out of the city. How do you think that New York City will be shaped by this afterwards? And how do you think the art scene and artists specifically will be impacted afterwards?
2: I just hope that the prices don't keep going going up for the artists Mm. here. Agreed. There are many, many artists, and they've made it what it is. And what it is is really good. It's not big businesses, or they're not mm -hmm, towers that go into the sky. And I dread the time that this becomes residential.
1: Mhm. Mhm.
2: And this happens with artists so much. They come and they come to a place that's really dangerous. Like at Williamsburg, I was there 23 years and I've been here uh at Bushwick for 20 years. So oh, wow. I've been in Brooklyn a long time, but in Williamsburg there were horrible, horrible drugs and prostitution and gunfighting. I had bullets through my window in my studio. Oh, my goodness. For all the beginning three or four years. And then they kicked out all of the people that were foreigners and then, you know, made themselves something else. Now it's really something else, you know. So I moved in before... Uh, well, 20 years ago, so that I was able to get it very cheaply, the place that I have now in Bushwick.
0: As I'm reflecting on what you said, there's this added poignancy about kicking out all the foreigners. And for you, you know, as someone who immigrated to the U.S. yourself, it's this, I don't know, I feel like a, a deep sense of poignancy in what you describe, hearing that history of change. So I don't know if it's a question that I'm saying per se, but more just a, a response to the deep power and poignancy of what you pointed out.
2: Yeah. When I came here, there was nothing but uh, people that work in the factories, and they were all from foreign lands. And it was just maybe three years later, artists were coming in because it was much cheaper to be here than it was in New York City. It just hurts so much to see artists not being treated right. I always want something to protect it, but if you get the government to protect it, there are things that come wrong with that too. I don't know. I don't really have the answer. but I, And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the people that are younger than I am. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I've had the spaces that I needed because I was willing to go to a place where nobody else wanted to live. Mm. But still, I had that space. And I have it now. And I feel so, so fortunate.
1: Yeah, it seems almost improbable. I mean, you coming to New York, a single mom, making very little money and still being able to create a, an amazing career as an artist, it feels like for younger artists today, if they move to New York in 2021, it's just not as realistic. So, hopefully, maybe one silver lining out of this pandemic will be that maybe there will be some kind of recalibration with property pricing and there will be more opportunity for younger artists to come in.
2: I hope so, but to to everything I know, that's never happened, Mm. right? Do you know where that's happened? No,
1: no. That's why I was asking, as someone as you've been in New York a lot longer, yeah. What your kind of perspective on that is?
2: It's really hard. It's really hard for the artist.
0: You've been through so much in your career, and I'm just curious: what was that sort of moment? When you felt that it's almost like that sort of guidance for younger artists. What was that moment when you felt you'd sort of crossed the hump almost, when you felt comfortable? And maybe you don't feel comfortable and never will, but I think there's something very, very inspiring about what you've accomplished. So I'm just curious, how do you reflect on that?
2: I never think that I've made it, whether. I've made it as an artist. I mean, I never think that, oh, I did so great. I'm not complaining, but I'm always looking for better. But it's not now better studio or better assistance. Now it's like better work.
0: Yeah. Ursula,
2: Mm -hmm. do better work. I mean, I don't say that to myself. It just sounded even stupid right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I do challenge myself. I do challenge myself. And I don't want to be bored. I know I've said that. Mm.
0: Well, I was going to say on the subject of not being boring, I thought now could be a good time to transition to art, Kiki. What do you think, Amitha?
1: Yes, sounds about the right time.
0: Ursula, at the end of every episode, we have a section that we call Art Kiki, which is sort of our time to to have sort of a, a, a what we call lighthearted gossip, almost, about the art world. And, you know, we've asked people sort of, what's a trend in the art world that you're really fed up with or, or something you're really loving? Or even an anecdote,
2: I guess... I really shudder at the thought that people think the piece that you pay the most for is the best because you pay the most (laughs) for it.
0: I was wondering, because one of the things that I personally was getting quite triggered by as I was learning more about your work and how people spoke about your work was that so many people read your work through a gendered lens, in that if a man were working with the media and scale that you do, it's not anything remarkable. But because of your gender, suddenly that becomes such a thing. For me, I thought, I wonder, how does Ursula feel about that, to constantly have her work read through the lens of her gender? I'm curious, what are your thoughts about that?
2: Well, tell me, what do you think about my making large works?
0: I think it's phenomenal and visionary and fun, but also... Intimidating. I think it's adventurous. But I don't know. It it feels kind of retrograde to say, oh, well, because she's a woman, we need to call that out. Because I'm sure so many female-identifying artists really get so frustrated. One of the things that someone once pointed out to me is that critics love to use the word ambitious to describe a work of art by a woman, whether that be a piece of writing or an artwork, in a way that they would never, if it was the exact same thing, but done by a man, they would never say it's ambitious. They would just say, it's great. And that's kind of where this question comes from, in that it seems... I'm not sure. Do you think about your gender when you do make work?
2: No, I never think about my gender when I do my pieces. I mean, who cares if if I make large pieces when I'm a woman or men make small pieces when they're men? It's like, is your work good? Does it mean something to you? You know, you have much, much better criteria than to say, well, can you do what men do? I mean, that's never occurred to me because your work is so big.
1: Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that it's very physically demanding and very labor-intensive process because you're manipulating all of these large pieces that people make a big deal out of it? Oh, it's a woman that's doing this very physically demanding work. I think what is
2: worse is that there's still a prejudice against women, you know?
0: Absolutely.
2: I don't even know how to describe it, but but I think there is with museums. I think there is with the stock market, not stock market, but.
0: The art market?
2: The art market. That's for sure. I mean, they know that it's getting better, but I just can't get into it. I just can't waste any energy on thinking about it because there's really nothing I can do, but I can continue to make my work. And that's a huge, huge gift. And I'm very grateful for it. But I don't think when I'm ever in my studio ever think about, oh, what would a man think if they saw this? Mm. And then, of course, I have a story about my father, you know, who came into my loft. This was in 1976. For the first time in his life. And he's the one that was the one that worked in Stanley Works factory mm. uh, under these horrible conditions. And then he worked in two factories at the same time. Then he got on his bike and went to the other one in Bristol, in Connecticut too, to and, and worked. I mean, he's just like a tremendous worker. So when he saw my studio... And I'm never sort of surprised because I, I know him. You know, they're illiterate. Both of my parents are illiterate and they never learned English. Like my father had maybe 50 words in English that he learned, you know, for a period wow. of about 40 years or 30 years. And one of them was cocksucker. <laughs> you know.
1: And I did <laughs> read that somewhere. I was wondering if you're going to mention that.
0: <laughs> I'm
1: dying. That's the factory vocabulary, maybe. <laughs> but they're
2: not what you think. There is a smartness in the fact that we went through eight camps for people that were Polish. Displaced person? Displaced people from Poland. So we went through eight camps, took us five years. And the idea was to get to the United States. So we finally Mm -hmm. did. But the miracle was, is how is it that we all, seven children stayed alive throughout all of that? And, of course, my mother was terrific mother. She just did everything that she could possibly do for her kids to keep them alive. My father came to my studio at at Spring Street and 6th Avenue, and he looked at what I was doing. And he couldn't believe it mm. because no, no. It's like he thought that I, I was like this blue collar worker. Mm. He says, I sent you to college for this. Wow. You know, he was like so mm. disappointed. And of course, I totally get it. You know, he's never seen art, but I also took my mother to Storm King. I had a solo show there. Yes. And I showed her it's all on the outside. They're all beautifully positioned. And she said, oh, how much you paying for renting this she thought I rented that mm. land to put my pieces, with, but but she's never been to an odd. In other
1: words, it's all
2: understandable. Mm. Yeah.
1: It's sort of ironic that your father, I wouldn't say disapproved, but whatever, wasn't, um, he he definitely disapproved. Well, okay, fine. Then if you say it, then (laughs) yeah, disapprove. (laughs) But I I remember reading about how your father was this very big, strong man who was amazing at chopping wood and could do the work of like seven men. So I think it's kind of ironic. Boy, are you you prepared? (laughs) No, but obviously, (laughs) I mean, you go back to wood and you work in a very physically demanding way. So I think that it's kind of like, like you said, it's in your blood, regardless of whether he approves or not. <laughs> he can't really be mad. It comes from him. It
2: comes from him, but he would be completely miffed if I said that. <laughs> but you're you're saying the reality. That's right.
0: You described how your father disapproved of that moment when he arrived at your studio and you told that beautiful, not beautiful, but that very magical story of bringing your mother to your solo exhibition at Storm King. And I'm curious, did your father's view of your work change? How did your parents... Did you arrive at a point when they saw the brilliance and splendor and magic of what you do?
2: That happens in stories, but not here. (laughs) Well, And it couldn't because they just really have a different breakdown. And to tell you the truth, our family, the kids, the mm -hmm. children have been to the best of colleges. It's not as though they didn't have a brain. They could Mm -hmm. not go to school because they had to work.
0: Well, in some kind of weird irony, perhaps, you speak about education and one of the things I've noticed is the best institutions also love your work. You have obviously the site-specific work at Princeton, you have the work at MIT, and there's this sort of beautiful sort of circular aspect to that, that your work has been so truly embraced and is so at home at these Deeply thoughtful institutions of learning. So, you are there. You you have, at least by that rubric, really arrived at a very very meaningful place. I think. So the final question, Ursula, was going to be: you've so kindly and generously talked us through so much of your history and your past, and I think it's really special to end each episode with a look forward, a look to the future. So I'm curious with that in mind, what are you looking forward to for the next six months?
2: Uh, The thing that would give me most pleasure is to continue my work. I, I don't know what else to say. That's what I have to have. And to have it in the space that I... Have is such a gift, and to have the people that I have working for me is such a gift.
0: Asla, uh, you know, you can hear from the pauses in my voice that I am and have been deeply moved and inspired by this conversation, by your generosity, by your candor, by your depth of thought, your smile, and your humor. So From the bottom of my heart, thank you (laughs) so much for your time. This has been one of the highlights uh, for me having this conversation. So thank you again and and thank you for joining us. Well, it was such
2: a pleasure. You're so gentle and you're so considerate. And I, I don't know, I really enjoyed it too. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. And your smiles counted for a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I also echo Will's sentiments. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and taking out so much time to speak with us today.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. And maybe I learned a thing or two as well. And the thing I thank the both of you for is how carefully you prepared for this. You read a lot, and I'm so grateful for that because it does make a better conversation.
0: Ursula, thank you again. Stay well, be safe, and we really hope that we get to see you and talk to you again soon.
1: Thank you. Okay.
0: Thanks, Ursula. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of art from the outside as a friendly reminder please subscribe and give us a rating on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at art from the outside podcast
0: our sound engineering is by hanger studios photography by enrique vega and original music by lola's ghost stay well be safe and hope you'll join us for the next episode